0: It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW, Sitka. Today is Thursday, October 1st, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Sitka officials reported two more coronavirus cases on Tuesday and a third Wednesday. A non resident between the ages of 10 and 19 tested positive after receiving a rapid test on Monday. The young man's case is tied to community spread, according to city data. A Sitka woman in her 50s also tested positive. She received testing on September 25th. Her case is classified as secondary, meaning she had known contact with someone who tested positive. On Wednesday, officials announced a third case, a Sitkin in his 40s. He received testing on Monday, and his case is also tied to another known positive all three patients were experiencing symptoms when they were tested. According to local data, there are now nine active coronavirus cases in Sitka, the highest number of active cases Sitka has seen in months. This led the city to increase the local alert level to moderate earlier this week. According to city guidelines, restaurants and bars should reduce capacity, outdoor gatherings are preferred, and face masks should be worn in indoor public spaces. Mount Edgecombe High School in Sitka briefly locked down and quarantined around 25 students after another student at the state-run boarding school tested positive for the coronavirus earlier this week. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports.
1: Mount Edgecombe High School Superintendent Janelle Vanoss says the positive case on campus prompted the school to shift into a temporary red alert level.
2: And that means we kind of just have kids stay put. Um, in their dorm rooms, like a dorm-wide quarantine. Teachers were teaching from their classroom, but students were accessing um, education from their dorm room. And that gave us the time to do the the contact tracing and work with public health nursing and identify other students that had been close contacts
1: Vanoss says they determined which students had close contact with the student who tested positive, tested those students, and set them up in quarantine quarters. After they'd concluded the initial contact tracing and all of the quarantine students' initial test results came back negative on Tuesday evening, the remaining students were allowed to go back to the classroom on Wednesday, and the campus returned to a moderate alert level. Vanoss says classrooms look a little different when they're in the orange.
2: Kids are pretty much restricted to be on campus and with no visitors, uh, but at an orange level they are. If you're not in quarantine, you are allowed to go to class. We have asked teachers to kind of shift back into a little bit more of a higher alert as far as the mitigations in their classroom, which includes, you know, teachers being in that teacher bubble. Uh, we have spacing as best we can in our classrooms to start with. We have a pretty robust routine of, of uh, sanitizing between each class. And then we do have teachers that are separated into a uh, teaching station or teaching bubble.
1: Regular testing is built into the school's plan. Groups of students are tested in weekly waves, with all students being tested at least once a month on average. Vanoss says she's thankful to the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium and the state's public health department for helping with the response on campus. She says like any school, MEHS staff are learning as they go and changing pieces of their mitigation plan as needed. But overall, their plan seems to be working.
2: As you know, we had the initial cases at the start of the year, and we were able to Uh, not have any campus spread from that and we now have um, This test result and so far it appears that we don't have any campus spread Um, so from a standpoint of of Mitigation we're really we're really pleased that our mitigation plan seems to be working
1: The students in quarantine will remain there for 14 days Attending classes virtually and will be tested two more times before they can return to class reporting in Sitka. I'm Katherine Rose Despite limitations
0: created by the pandemic, the annual survey of North Pacific halibut stocks has wrapped up for the year. Although the results of sampling won't be disclosed until the interim meeting of the International Pacific Halibut Commission in November, the top scientist at the IPHC is confident that the numbers will be reliable. Lainey Welch with Alaska Fish Radio reports.
3: Resounding success is how scientists summed up this summer's Pacific halibut survey, despite it being shortened and scaled down a bit due to the COVID pandemic. The so-called fishery independent setline survey uses standardized methods to track trends in the halibut stock, which ranges from the West Coast and British Columbia to the far reaches of the Bering Sea. This summer, 11 longline vessels took halibut scientists aboard for two months to fish at 898 survey stations, down 30%. The foregone areas were waters off California, Oregon, and Washington for Alaska survey areas in the Bering Sea near the Pribilofs were cut, along with stations at the Aleutian Islands near Unalaska and Adak
4: also thinned out a little bit in 3B, and then also the stations off Vancouver Island.
3: David Wilson is director of the International Pacific Halibut Commission. He says roughly 70% of the Pacific halibut biomass overall was sampled, and 100% in the core areas of the central Gulf, southeast, and northern British Columbia.
2: Normally we would have done a thinner sampling in those areas, but to ensure we had enough samples coming out, we went for 100% of those core areas areas which is why we've produced an incredibly rich data set for 2020.
3: More survey findings and a first glimpse at how the halibut stocks are holding up will be unveiled at the IPHC interim meeting set for November 18th and 19th. Wilson says the meetings will be held online. Halibut catch limits and other regulations are revealed at the annual meetings in late January The Pacific stock has been declining. Alaska's commercial halibut catch for this year was about 17 million pounds.
0: Lainey Welch's Alaska Fish Radio is sponsored by Ocean Beauty Seafoods and the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association. A tribe in southeast Alaska has won permanent protection for the site of a historic Tlingit village whose descendants claim centuries-old ties to Glacier Bay. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, complex negotiations secured 150 acres that had been eyed by commercial developers.
4: Berg Bay lies on the western shores of Glacier Bay, made famous to the outside world by the writings of 19th-century naturalist John Muir. But centuries earlier, it had been a major Tlingit population center. Then huge ice sheets forced its inhabitants to relocate south to Chichikov Island to what's now modern-day Huna. It has a tremendous cultural significance to um, uh, the Huna Tlingit, uh, and uh, most specifically to um, the two clan. Bob Starbard is tribal administrator of the Huna Indian Association. He says much of the site is encompassed on a 150-acre parcel that was an original Native allotment belonging to the St. Clair family. In 1980, most of the land around it became a national park. And two years ago, the family put the acreage up for sale. The asking price, $1.7 million. Starbard says the tribe had to act. We knew that there were some development interests uh, on the part of the lodge owners uh, interested um, in developing, and that was a use that we felt was incompatible uh, with both the tribe's interests, uh, the clan's interests, and the park's interests but financing such a large deal proved difficult. The National Park Service was also interested, but the federal agency found that the asking price exceeded what the government considered fair market value. That's when the Conservation Fund got involved. It's a Virginia-based nonprofit that buys land and deeds it over to agencies for conservation. Uh, there was quite a bit of head-scratching early on about how we were going to accomplish this. Brad Nickeljohn is the fund's Anchorage-based Alaska representative. But we heard clearly from... The park that they wanted to find a creative way to make this happen because of the history of the use of the the park by the folks from HUNA. So there was a pretty concerted
2: effort to be accommodating.
4: The fund partnered with the National Park Foundation, another nonprofit with a similar mission, to buy the property outright for an undisclosed sum. It's since deeded the 150 acres to the federal government to be added to Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. But that's not the end of the story. The tribe will get special access. Philip Hoogie is the National Park Superintendent. He authorized inking a formal agreement codifying special rights for the tribe to gather plants, fish, and build a smokehouse and other cultural structures for ceremonies. Glacier Bay was the homeland of the Klinket, who were um, you know, driven out by the ice moving um, out of the bay. And it's been a, a long road to that sense of homeland um, and to have, you know, the Park Service recognize that. Formal plans will be worked out between the tribe and Park Service each spring, and it's unlikely anything will be built soon. The grassy valley and 2,200 feet of beach along Berg Bay will be for both tribal members and park visitors to enjoy. Bob Starbird, the tribal administrator, says the area has a bond to Hoonah's Tlingit people that predates modern civilization, and it's something to celebrate and share. We're not necessarily offended by visitors as long as they respect our rights uh, and history there. No hunting will be allowed or commercial activities, but according to the terms of the conservation easement, the Hunas tribe's special rights are, in the documents legalese, forever. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick.
0: The Centers for Disease Control pushed to extend an order barring large cruise ships from sailing from U.S. ports until February 2021 over coronavirus concerns. But the agency was overruled by Vice President Mike Pence. That's according to a report from the news outlet Axios that cites two unnamed sources with knowledge of the conversation. Axios reports that the Trump administration plans to extend the order through October 31st of this year. That coincides with the planned end of a voluntary suspension instituted by Cruise Industry Group, Cruise Lines International Association. The CDC's no-sale order was set to expire October 1st. The order followed outbreaks on cruise ships in the early days of the pandemic. More recently, Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings and Royal Caribbean Group have submitted recommendations to the CDC that they say would protect passengers and crew from COVID-19. Those include testing, temperature checks, mask wearing and capacity limits, among others. Carnival Corporation and Cruise Line MSC resumed Mediterranean sailings in August. So far, those haven't resulted in COVID-19 outbreaks. Federal law requires that Alaska cruises from the U.S. stop in at least one foreign port. That's usually Victoria or Vancouver, British Columbia. Canada's ban on cruise ship sailings also expires October 31st, though it could be extended. Ships normally start calling on Alaska ports in April. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.